0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, well, good to see you guys this morning. My name is Kent. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you, um, if you have a Bible nearby, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, no worries. You should be able to grab one of ours in the rack underneath a seat somewhere nearby. Uh, But we will be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Part of the reason that I'm having you turn to 1 Peter this morning is because we are beginning a new teaching series this morning straight through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, Over the next 15 weeks or so, we will just be marching our way straight through this book and discovering all that it has to say Um, for our lives today. Now, um, if you've been around for a few weeks, you know that we have just finished a teaching series really all about the Bible, uh, about understanding the Bible and reading the Bible and studying the Bible. And so in many ways, we're kind of putting that to the test over the next few months as we just study straight through this letter from a guy named Peter. Peter. So that being said, my goal for this morning is just to unpack what the central idea of 1 Peter is, and then talk a little bit about why I think that idea has relevance for our lives today. That's kind of what we're doing this morning. And in order to do that, we are only going to cover the first two verses of the book. Now, For those of you that are type A in the room, please don't panic. Uh, For the rest of the series, I promise we will cover more than two verses a Sunday, just so we're not in 1 Peter for like 17 years by the time it's all said and done. But this morning, I need to spend some time unpacking the ideas that we find just in the first two verses, because to be honest, there's a lot of content packed in just these two verses. So for this morning, we're just going to cover verses one and two. Um, so, let's take a look. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Are you guys excited about First Peter? Woo! Yeah, that's great. The rest of you, I'm, so, I'm sure, are just excited on the inside, so we'll just receive it that way. First Peter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, stop there. I told you there was a lot of content in these two verses. So, A lot of times in the ancient world, people would sign their names at the beginning of correspondence, kind of like how we sign our names at the end. So this letter is written by a guy named Peter. If you're newer to church or to the Bible, uh, Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was specifically one of the disciples that was closest at a relational level to Jesus himself. Peter was also one of the leaders of the early church. So that's who we're reading from. That's who this letter was written by. Now let's see who it was written to. Keep reading, picking it back up in verse 1 to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the intended audience of everything we're about to read in this book is a group of people referred to as elect exiles in what would be modern-day Turkey, essentially. The word elect in that verse simply means chosen or selected. It's fairly straightforward in what it means. But the word exile is a good bit more complex. Exile is one word in the Greek that you kind of need two English words to translate well in English. You need one word that means to live or reside in a certain place. And then you need another word that means you don't truly belong or fit in in that place. Does that make sense? So in English, it might be something like citizen stranger, if we were to sort of jam those two words together, or maybe something like um, resident alien without all of the political and legal connotations that that term has. It's something like that. So an exile is a person who lives in a certain place but doesn't truly belong or fit in in that place in some way. That's who this letter is written to. Now, It's hard for us to be certain from history exactly why these people were exiles, or even really whether that term was meant literally or figuratively in the first place, or maybe it was both. But the point is that Peter wants his people, Peter wants these people that he writes to, to think of themselves in this way. He wants them to think of themselves as exiles, These followers of Jesus found themselves living in a place where they did not really belong, where they didn't fit in, a place where their values were not the culture's values around them, where their way of doing things was not the normal way of doing things at all, where their way of life was at best different from the society around them, and at worst, it was at odds with and offensive to the people around them. And as a result, these people, these followers of Jesus found themselves misunderstood, often maligned, and sometimes even actively mistreated by the society that they were a part of. Now, maybe on the surface, that sounds like a completely foreign experience to a lot of us. Like maybe we're thinking, yeah... I've never really felt all that mistreated because I'm a follower of Jesus. That's just never really been a part of my story in any substantial way. And and to be honest, I kind of feel like I fit in pretty well with the society that I'm a part of as a follower of Jesus. So for a lot of us, it might be hard to think of a time where we've felt actively mistreated and excluded because of our faith. And I think because of that, it might be easy for us to think that a book like 1 Peter doesn't really have all that much immediate relevance to to us today. But I wanna invite you to think about that just a little bit further. In order to do that, I'd love for us just to imagine a scenario together. I want you to imagine with me that you arrived, uh, let's say 10, 15 minutes early to the gathering this morning. Now we're already squarely in hypothetical category, right? Because most of us don't do that. But just imagine, you show up 10 to 15 minutes to the gathering this morning. And the reason that you show up early is because you're going to park your car here at the building and you're going to walk down to Honeybee a couple blocks away and get a latte or some sort of specialty drink before you arrive at the gathering. And so you roll into Honeybee and it's Sunday morning, so it's pretty slow, not a lot of people in there. And so you're thinking, okay, I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to build relationships with people in our city, so I'm going to strike up a conversation with my barista while they make my drink. So you start talking to the barista, and it turns out you guys have a lot in common, you have a similar sense of humor, there's tons for you to talk about, and it's going really well. And you're thinking, man, way to go, me. Like, I'm really doing a good job being a missionary. This is great. And the conversation is going really, really well, and then there's a little bit of a lull in the conversation, And the barista fills that lull by asking you the question you were sincerely hoping they would not ask you, which is, so what are you up to this morning? Because in your mind, you know I'm about to go to church, and that's not really a normal thing to talk about with somebody you just met, usually, right? And so you very quickly try to come up with a good, believable lie, and then you realize you're a follower of Jesus, so you shouldn't do that, and you decide to tell them what you're about to go do. And you say, well, you know, actually I'm, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus, and so I'm headed to church this morning. Uh, every Sunday morning, me and a bunch of other followers of Jesus here in our city, we get together, uh, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord over our lives and over our world, and we sing songs to Jesus for a little while. Soy milk on the drink, please, would be great. And immediately things get tense, right? Right? I mean, maybe not. A lot of times baristas are Christians, so maybe it's great, right? Like, that's a pretty popular profession for Christians to have, but probably things get a little bit tense. The conversation sort of grinds to a halt. Maybe if your barista is nice, they go, oh, cool, which you know is actually code for we're done talking now, right? Has anybody ever found themselves in a scenario kind of like that one? I would bet that a lot of us have. So the reason I bring that up is to say that that experience, that feeling of, oh, this is awkward now, that they know this about me, that experience is the experience of an exile. Now, I get that that experience is nowhere near as intense as maybe what the early Christians were facing in the book of First Peter. I get that it's on a different level when it comes to intensity, but the principle at play is exactly the same. It's the same principle at work. Those of us who follow Jesus live in a world where our values are not necessarily the culture's values around us. We live in a world where they don't believe what we believe, they don't operate the way that we operate, and often our values are going to be opposite from and even off-putting to the society around us, hence the awkwardness and standoffishness in situations like that one. We are exiles. We are citizen strangers. The culture around us does not share our way of life our way of thinking or living, and sometimes we'll look at all of that in our lives with skepticism, and even sometimes hostility as a result of that. So in the same way, I think if Peter could speak to us directly as 21st century American followers of Jesus, I think he would say something very similar to us. I think he would say, I I don't care how long you've lived in America. I don't care how much you love America. I don't care how proud you are to be an American. You are still to think of yourselves as exiles here. And here's why. Because your citizenship is not ultimately in being an American. Your citizenship is from heaven. Now, that being said, there's something you should know about me. I love it here in America, okay? So don't, before you try to get me like deported somewhere, I love it in America. I think it's great here. I shoot so many fireworks on the 4th of July, regardless of how illegal it is to do that in Knox County, right? I I love it here. Uh, One of my favorite foods in the world is a cheeseburger because of how American that cheeseburger tastes, right? So I love it here. But that being said, the most important thing about me is not that I'm an American, it's that I'm a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? And that's what you have to get if you are going to understand yourself as an exile. That is who we are in our society. Now, one thing that makes all of this a little bit tricky, I think, is that it hasn't always been like this in America. It hasn't always felt like that on an everyday type of level. Many of us in the room can remember when feeling like an exile wasn't a common experience at all for an American, for a Christian living in America. If you rewind 50, 75 years, Christians didn't really feel that way at all. For many of our parents or grandparents or maybe great-grandparents in the room, if they publicly made it known that they were a Christian in their society, that almost always worked to their advantage at a societal level. Like, that went really well for them if people knew that they were a Christian. It meant that people thought they were trustworthy, they were respectable, they were moral, they were upright. Being a Christian meant that people trusted you to babysit their kids. It meant that they were more likely to vote for you if you ran for office. That was just the society that used to exist in our country. Back then, if people, even if they didn't share your faith perspective, they usually respected you for having it on some level. And in fact, that's probably what led a lot of people back in the day to identify as Christians even when they weren't, really. Because it was actually advantageous for them to identify that way. But all of that is changing. For instance, as of 2012, Protestant Christians are no longer a majority in the U.S. That is the first time in history that that has been true. And 2012 is eight years ago. I couldn't find an updated stat, but it's probably even more true now than it was then. According to nearly every study done, people with no religious affiliation are the fastest fastest growing demographic in our country. Additionally, it used to be that being a Christian carried a positive connotation, like we mentioned earlier, People associated Christians with words like moral and honorable and respectable and trustworthy. But a study was done back in 2012 that found the most common words now associated with Christian are words like judgmental, hypocritical, and (laughs) anti-gay. Lastly, and this one specifically stood out to me in light of the series that we're in, One study found that nearly half of non-religious adults in America perceive Christians to be, quote, extremists. So do you see the shift that has happened and is happening in our country? The reality is that the, the public perception and posture towards Christianity has changed and is continuing to change. And there are no signs that that is going to reverse itself anytime soon. And many of us have probably felt that shift in conversations that we have on a regular basis. Now, if you haven't really felt that, there are probably those among us that have not really felt that shift at a personal level. That's probably because we still live in the Bible Belt, right? So it'll be a while before we feel this cultural pressure at the level that somebody living in a city like New York or LA or Seattle might feel it. But it's happening nonetheless, and we will sense it more and more in the coming years. We can try to fight it or ignore it or pretend it isn't true, but the fact of the matter is that it is true, and we will have to confront that reality sooner or later. We are exiles. Now, with that being said, I would love to just speak very bluntly with you guys for a moment. Can we do that? Are we at that level in our relationship? I'm just going to assume that we are. Um, I would like to speak very blunt with you about this. If I'm just going to be honest, um, there's a group of people in our country that have a really difficult time understanding that they are exiles. And it's white, middle-to-upper-class Americans. That group of people tends to have a really difficult time with this concept. We wrestle to to understand and comprehend what it means that we are truly exiles. Because quite honestly, for most of us, we have grown accustomed to the society around us valuing the things that we value, doing life the way that we do life on some level. And so it's very difficult for us to understand that culture might not be catering to us at a spiritual plane. On the other hand, a lot of you in the room who are minorities, you probably already have a working understanding of this concept at some level. Because for a lot of the same reasons, you already know the feeling of being in exile. In some ways, you may know it all too well. But for probably the bulk of us in this room, just knowing what I know about the demographic of our church This mentality, understanding ourselves as exiles is going to be an adjustment. It's going to take some work to think about ourselves this way. It's going to take some work for us to understand that we are no longer the majority in our country at a spiritual level. And therefore, we probably shouldn't expect our culture to cater to us as Christians. It's going to take some work for us to get this. But until we understand ourselves as exiles, we will find ourselves perpetually frustrated when our society does not cater to us like we think it should. So that's the bad news, if you'd like to think about it that way. We as followers of Jesus are no longer the majority in our country and probably won't be for any time in the near future. But here's the good news. God's people have nearly always been exiles. God's people have nearly always been that way. In fact, you can make the argument that God's people in the Bible spend more time in exile than not. And because of that, the scriptures actually have lots to say about what life in exile looks like for us as followers of Jesus. In fact, you could even say that God's intentions for his people is never that we would be a powerful, imposing majority in our country. God's purposes for his people have always been that we would be an influential, creative minority, that we would learn how to operate in that way. And perhaps, in fact, the more obvious it becomes to us that that's precisely what we are in our society, the more we can get on with being who God has called his people to be all along in the scriptures. That's what it means to be exiles. So the question that this all brings us to is how do we respond? How do we respond to the reality that we are exiles? Given that we live in a society that sees the world very differently than we do, how do we live faithfully and helpfully and missionally within that situation as followers of Jesus? How are we called to relate to the people and the systems and the structures in our world on a regular basis? And those are actually the very questions that 1 Peter is written to help answer. How do we relate to the people and systems and structures in our world as followers of Jesus, as exiles who are followers of Jesus? Peter in this letter is primarily concerned with how we live in that type of society. And because of that, I think this letter has every bit as much relevance to us today as it did to people back then. I think it has every bit as much to say to exiles living in America in the 21st century as it did to the people that Peter was originally writing to. So we're going to let Peter teach us through this letter how to respond to exile. Even if their situation seems a little bit different than ours on the surface, it's the same ideas at work. And so we're going to let him teach us how to respond to exile. Now, what I've noticed just kind of as I've observed people in our world and how they respond to this reality, is that different people tend to respond very different ways to finding themselves in exile. I would put people's responses to exile in three overarching categories. We're going to walk through these briefly just because I think it gives us lenses to understand how we tend to respond and then to be able to contrast that with how Peter says we should respond as followers of Jesus. So three categories I've seen people fall into when it comes to their response to exile. Some people conform, some people run, and some people fight. Some people conform, some people run, some people fight. We'll walk through these one by one, just to sort of wrap our minds around them a little bit. The first response to being found as an exile in the society you're a part of is to conform. So conforming seeks to resolve the problem of exile in a very simple way. It decides to just assimilate completely to the ways of the world around us. In other words, let's just eliminate all the differences between our way of life and their way of life so that people don't take issue with who we are as followers of Jesus. Simple enough, right? Anything that seems foreign or offensive or off-putting to our host culture, let's just not do or not believe those things and we'll be fine. Uh, The old school sort of Baptist preacher term for this would be worldliness. Have You ever heard somebody say that? Worldliness Conforming is deciding to become just like the world around us so that the world will accept us as followers of Jesus. So, what are some good ways to know if you've conformed? Uh, Simply put, just ask the question Is there any noticeable difference between my life, my way of life, and that of a person who doesn't follow Jesus? Is there any noticeable difference between my life and their life? For instance, is there any noticeable difference in the way you approach sex as a follower of Jesus compared to the average American and how they approach it? Those of you with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, do you live with that person just like everybody else would? Those of you who are dating, would you sleep with the person on the second, third, fourth date just like anyone else would? Do you talk about sex just like anyone else would, just like it's light and casual and meaningless, like it's just recreation for adults? And honestly, sex is just one arena of life. I think it's a very important one, and it's one that we tend to compromise on first, if you know what I mean by that. But we could ask the same question with a variety of other topics, right? Do you approach money and possessions the same way as the average American does? Are you drawn to materialism just like the average American is? Do you approach interpersonal relationships just like the average American does? If there is very little discernible difference between how you go about your life and how the average American non-Christian goes about theirs, that means that on some level you have conformed. That's how you know that this is you. And here's the problem at a functional level with conforming. If your life looks indistinguishable from anyone else around you, there is very little to draw them to the way of Jesus through your life. Jesus calls this salt losing its saltiness. So Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything. So in other words, if, if your non-Christian coworker sees in your life nothing more than a mirror image of their own values and way of life, what is going to draw them to the way of Jesus? Because to them, that communicates that Christianity has no real power, that Jesus has no real power, that all, all this is, all Christianity is, is a hobby for people that like don't have anything to do with their Sundays or something. So conforming is not the answer to just become exactly like the world around us is not an effective response to exile so response number two that i've seen in people when it comes to understanding themselves as exiles is that a lot of people on the other hand tend to run they tend to run we could sum this one up with another word retreat Retreat. There's a big bad world out there and it's trying to corrupt us all, so let's just create our own little subculture and keep to ourselves. That's the best way to respond is what these people think. Now, an extreme obvious example of this response would be a group of people like the Amish, right? So what they do is they separate from society as a response to them seeing society as corrupt. But to be honest, we do it in far more subtle ways than that. We still still do it just as much. We just do it in more subtle ways. We do this for instance when we live the entirety of our lives from inside a Christian bubble. Here's one way to know whether or not you've run. Do you have any non-Christian friends? Do you have any non-Christian friends? And I don't mean just like people that you wave to at a distance when you see them in the grocery store. That's not what I mean. I don't mean like just people that you're pleasant to when you happen to run into them. I mean friends, like people who are in your home on a regular basis, people who you go do stuff with for fun on the weekends. Do you have any friends who are not followers of Jesus? If not, there's a good chance that at least on some level you have run. So let me say this, specifically when it comes to our church, I I like to be able to try to speak into what tendencies I see in our church family specifically. Let me just say one thing I love about you guys at our church is that we hang out with each other a lot, right? Like we're not just church friends, we're actual friends, if that makes sense. We, We hang out with one another on a regular basis. We're in each other's homes on a regular basis. We hang out a lot and that's great and I wouldn't want to change that. But one thing that I would like to speak into is if we are doing that to the exclusion of building relationships with our non Christian classmates and coworkers and neighbors and friends, if we can't build relationships with them because we're always only hanging out with each other, that's not a win for the kingdom. That's not good. <laughs> Because the whole purpose in us spending time loving one another is to serve one another, but it's also that the world might get a glimpse into what it looks like for followers of Jesus to love one another. And so they might be drawn to Jesus as a result. And so that's the functional problem with running, is that the entire point of following Jesus is to let the world around us get a glimpse into who God is and what he's like. Jesus unpacks this by calling God's people the, quote, light of the world. He says, no one takes a light and hides it under a basket because that defeats the purpose of the light, right? Which is his way of saying, if we live these distinct, holy, other types of lives as followers of Jesus, but we do all of that from within our own subculture where nobody can ever see it, our lives can't be what they were meant to be. Nobody can see what they were meant to see through our way of life. We can't be the shining city on a hill that God intended us to be. So running isn't an option either. Lastly, the last common response I've seen people have to exile is to fight. Is to fight. So fighting, to be honest, is in some ways similar to running, but it's more antagonistic in its posture. Fighting is saying not only are we going to separate from the world, we're going to take back the cultural power where we've lost it. We're going to win the culture wars. You ever heard somebody use that term? We're going to win the culture wars. We're going to show everybody that nobody takes the power from Christians in our society. I bring this one up mostly because we're in the Bible belt and people here still have a little bit of that nobody takes our country from us mentality going on. So I think it's important to bring up. Uh, Here's how you know if fighting is your mindset, if you know this is your tendency. You will see non-Christians primarily as people to vote against, argue with, and antagonize before you see them as people to love and serve. If you see non-Christians as mainly a group of people who are trying to ruin the next election or who are trying to ruin things for the rest of us, if you've ever said the phrase, they're ruining our country, really regardless of who they is in that sentence, this is you. Your tendency is to fight. Now, if this is you, I know what you might be thinking at this point in the teaching. You might be thinking to yourself, but wait, America is a Christian nation, so shouldn't we put up a fight on some level as it seems like we're becoming less and less of a Christian nation? Okay, here is the part of the sermon that is most likely to get me some angry emails. You guys in general don't do that, which I'm really thankful for, by the way. But if there's going to be a part of the sermon that you would do that for, it's probably this part. Just remember, if you need to send me an email, my name is Jeff Shong, and my email is (laughs) jeff at citychurchknox.com. Just send as many of them as you want. Be as angry as you want. I'll respond to them right away. So, here would be my response to, isn't America a Christian nation? America is not and has never been a Christian nation. One reason I say that is because there is no such thing. Nations can't be Christians. Only people can be Christians. So Jesus did not die to save a country. Jesus died to save people. So unless you mean that every single human being in America is a Christian, which would be a very silly thing for you to believe, America is not and has never been a Christian nation. That's one reason. The second reason is because even if there was such thing as a Christian nation, such a nation would not have been built on the backs of slaves. It wouldn't have. And to be honest, America is also built on a number of practices and beliefs that run very contrary to the kingdom of Jesus. Now, I think what people mean when they say that America is a Christian nation is that our country was founded on some Judeo-Christian values. And I think that's certainly true. I think that's clear from any of our founding documents, right? But I would strongly encourage you not to see America as a Christian nation that needs to be taken back over for Jesus. And here's why because it will lead you to demonize the very people that you were called to love and serve. So, America is not a Christian nation. God is not in trouble, He does not need us to bail Him out. God knows exactly what He's doing. And he's placed us as exiles in this society so that we might work towards people seeing who he is. And that's what Peter's trying to get across in this letter. So conforming won't work, running won't work, and fighting won't work either. None of those are helpful responses as followers of Jesus. All of them miss the point to one degree or another which leaves us all wondering what should our response be? If none of those are the answer to be in an exile, what is? What's a helpful response to all of this? Well, before I tell you, just as a fair warning, all I'm gonna do today is give you a name for it, and I'm gonna give you a quote by somebody else that I think unpacks this idea fairly well. I'm not gonna go into any more detail than that today, only because literally the rest of the letter is Peter unpacking what this looks like in different facets of life. Okay, so just didn't, I don't want you to be bummed out if I just left it kind of open uh, for this morning. All I'm going to do is give you a name for it, kind of a helpful way of describing the response that we're called to have, and then we'll just touch on it really briefly before moving on. But here is how I would describe the posture that Peter proposes in this letter of how we should respond to exile, how we should think about ourselves in exile. I would call it distinctive, influential presence. Distinctive, influential presence. I think what Peter is going to call followers of Jesus to over and over again in this letter that we're about to work our way through Is distinctive influential presence. So he calls us not to conform to culture, but to live distinctively within it. He calls us not to fight culture, but rather to influence it. And he calls us not to run from culture, but to remain present right in the midst of it. Distinctive influential presence. Here's how a guy named Lee Beach puts it in his fantastic book, The Church in Exile. If you want to read more on all of this and kind of wrap your mind around it a little bit more, I would highly recommend that book to you. It's called The Church in Exile. Here's what he says, specifically talking about the letter of 1 Peter. He says, for Peter, the church is not called to overthrow the culture and its norms, but instead to subvert them. The church functions as a witness by lives that reflect integrity and righteousness so that even if it draws derision from some, eventually the people's lives will have an effect that brings even their critics to see God through their actions. This is a work of subversion that does not seek to conquer culture, but rather to live differently within it. That's what we're called to as followers of Jesus. And like I said, we're going to spend the rest of this series unpacking all the implications and applications of that idea. But hopefully that gives you at least a little bit of a preview of where we're headed. Distinctive influential presence. For today, for the little bit of time we have left, I just want to close out by talking about what makes all of that possible. What makes it possible for us to live within this distinctive, influential presence? And for that, we're going to circle back to verse 2 of our passage. Because verse 2, I think, provides us with the basis and the motivation for this posture towards our society. It gives us a preview about where it all comes from and really how to persist in it day after day. So let's circle back around to verse 2 together. Remember, Peter has just said that we are elect exiles. That's who he's writing the letter to. And then verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So let's break down each part of that second verse very briefly. First, it says that we are elect exiles, quote, according to the foreknowledge of God. That's our first phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, that could just mean that God foreknew us as exiles, or it could mean that God foreknew us and he foreknew the fact that we would be in exile. Does that make sense? Either way, here's what we know from elsewhere in the scriptures. God is not uninvolved in his people finding themselves in exile. God is not uninvolved. For instance, in the book of Jeremiah, a book that actually talks a good bit about the idea of God's people being exiles, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah actually puts it like this. This is chapter 29, verse seven. We'll put it on the screen. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Did you catch that phrase in the middle? The city where I have sent you into exile. Who is I in that sentence? God, right? So that's kind of an odd idea. From history, we know that the nation of Babylon actually came and carried Israel into exile, but here God says he did it. In other words, it was his plan to have his people go into exile. I wonder how many people in America as we see the cultural influence and power of Christianity start to wane a little bit, I wonder how many see that happen and think to themselves, I bet this is God's plan. It's just not how we think, is it? We don't think when we are losing cultural influence and power, we don't tend to think, oh, I bet this is how God wanted it to happen. But right here in Jeremiah, we have it plain as day. God foreknew not only the exiles themselves, but the fact that they would be in exile. And knowing that about our situation today, I think helps us not panic about it or retaliate against it happening. God knows, which means we don't have to freak out. Then... Peter says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's our next phrase. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, probably a better translation of that word, sanctification, would be the word consecration, which is not really a word that's super familiar with us, but it means like a setting apart of some sort, which is a way of saying that this same God who foreknew our situation also set us apart to be a distinct witness to him in the world, not to blend in, but to, at least on some level, stand out, to be distinctive, to be set apart, to be consecrated to him. So the fact that God has allowed all of this to happen, the fact that God has allowed us to be exiles in our society, doesn't mean that we just throw up our hands and say, well, I have no choice but to give in to the society around me. I have no choice but to do what they do, go about life the way that they go about life. No, rather, we are called to live distinctively from the society around us in all sorts of different ways that we'll get into in this series. The fact of the matter is that we will never be able to do that perfectly as followers of Jesus, which is why the last thing that Peter says matters so much in verse two. Finally, he says, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, there's an interesting sentence, right? So what's happening is that Peter is referencing an Old Testament story. If you're keeping up with the Bible reading plan, I think we actually read the story like last Sunday, like a week ago. But in the story, what happens is that Moses, the leader of the nation of Israel, he comes down to deliver the law to the Israelites. And upon hearing the law, the Israelites respond by saying, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. If you remember that passage. They say, everything that God has told us to do, we will do. Which is a somewhat ironic statement to make coming from Israel, right? Considering that like most of the rest of the Bible is them consistently failing to do what God told them to do. But that's what they say. They say, everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. But after they do that, after they say that, Moses takes the blood from an animal sacrifice and he literally sprinkles it on the people of Israel. Now, this was a way of communicating that though they had every intention of living distinctively from the world around them, it was a way of saying that their ability to live distinctly was not what made them right with God. A sacrifice was still needed to stand in their place. But now... Post-Jesus' crucifixion, that phrase takes on even more meaning for exiles living today. Because Peter actually says that it is with the blood of Jesus that this all happens now. It is the sacrifice of Jesus that now stands in our place. Part of the point of the cross is that we, like the Israelites, quite literally cannot do all of the things that God calls us to do. That was the point of the cross. Our sin makes us incapable of doing that. We are incapable of living perfectly distinct lives as followers of Jesus. We will at some point and probably often fail to do that perfectly. But the fact that we are marked by Jesus' own blood means that that failure is no longer a barrier between us and God. That no matter how imperfectly we carry out being this distinctive, influential presence, Jesus himself stands in our place the entire way. Jesus was the only person to perfectly execute what it meant to live as an exile. He refused to conform. He refused to run. And he refused to fight. He perfectly embodied everything that you and I are called to be as followers of Jesus. And because of that, those of us who have trusted in Jesus get to find acceptance with God, regardless of how imperfect we are at all of this. That is the good news that we find in the scriptures for followers of Jesus. And being his disciples, We get to learn from him along the way about how to walk in all of this more and more day by day. We get to learn how Jesus walked. We get to learn to walk as Jesus walked. So for the next few months, 1 Peter is going to assist us in that learning process. Peter, who himself walked alongside Jesus as Jesus found himself as an exile in his society, Peter, who was privy to how Jesus walked in that tension day by day perfectly, Peter is going to help us figure it all out. We're going to learn how to live as a, a faithful, as a distinctive, as an influential presence in our society together. So that's where we're headed for the next 15 weeks. But we have to start, before we go anywhere else, we have to start with the foundation with remembering who and what makes all of this possible in the first place, and that's Jesus and his death on the cross. And it's only through that reality that we can learn to live and even thrive in exile. So today, we'll just leave it there. Let me pray for us.